You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today I am speaking to Ramon Rivas II, uh, who I believe is the first the second we've had on the show. Hello, Ramon. Uh, Ramon is uh, a comedian in Lorraine, Ohio, uh, who lives in abundance as an artist, despite his lack of financial privilege. I'm quite pleased with that as a sentence. We're going to get on to what all of that stuff means quite soon. Um, I've described him in the show notes as a comedian and go-getter. What I really wanted to describe him as was a hustler, but I think unless you hear the nuance of someone's voice as they deliver that, it could probably be misinterpreted. But Ramon is someone who... I think I feel a certain kinship with in our shared excitement about not just grafting to make your way in comedy, but grafting in a sort of, I don't know, I can't find the right word that says hustler without there being any negative connotations. I remember I was at um, the LA Podcast Festival a few, I mean, a good few years ago now, and uh, I think I was the first English person that had been there and I was working the line. I'd kind of overnight printed out a bunch of flyers to try and get some of the, the podcast otaku who were in the room, the super fans, uh, in that convention centre, the Beverly Hills Hotel, I think it was, um, uh, to try and in- encourage them along to get into my room to come and see my live podcast up against, as it was, uh, real big, big names in American comedy podcasting. And so I was kind of working the line, flyering people. And they said, oh, no, no one really does that. Uh, we admire your hustle. So in that sense, uh, is, it's, it's that kind of sense, the, the hustle that is to be admired, which is what Ramon is all about. He's a very funny comic. He's a big guy. And we talk about being big, broken brown. Um, and we get into, I mean, one of the fascinating things from a UK perspective, uh, which we will get into, is Ramon's discovery that in Edinburgh, the Edinburgh Festival in 2019, on his first trip, he was perceived as white by his audiences and what that made. I mean, I've, I've actually uh, included in the show notes of this a link to Ramon delivering that story as a kind of, as material, but as a true story as well. There's a, a video link in, the, in this episode. You can also get it at his website, blazerramon.com. Uh, it's really worth listening to because it is a, a really fascinating insight on race. It's a really interesting way in which to look at Ramon's discovery of himself and how he holds himself and how those things are uh, affected 
by the issue of race, particularly the issue of race in America, and then coming to somewhere very different to America, what light that threw on that subject. So I'll let Ramon get into all of this, but it's a, a really fun conversation. And there is some extras available, 40 minutes of extras at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Or if you're already in the Insiders Club, simply find it on your private personal podcast, um, where we will talk about some of Ramon's outre tactics for making comedy pay. Uh, including a, a really kind of fleshed out uh, and exploded diagram, if you like, of his strategy with DistroKid. We'll also talk about weed comedy for the first time on this podcast. That's uh, uh, You might get the at Blazer Ramon on Twitter and BlazerRamon.com uh, is a reference to drugs. <laughs> uh, we'll get into that on the insider stuff. But for now, let's get stuck into this podcast with Ramon. I've been really enjoying your stuff. You sent me loads of clips. I've listened to your stuff on Spotify. And what I really enjoy about your material is the fact that obviously the word laid back will get bandied around every time anyone talks about you because the pace of it is sort of very deliberately slow. It's a very refreshing listen because you go, oh, there we go. This guy's letting me come to him. And yeah. one of the things I've really been enjoying is the way that your delivery really suits your narrative. It suits your persona. It suits who you are and where you're coming from. And something I really enjoyed, one of the first kind of sit up and like, oh, that's really good. You were talking about um, poverty and being good at poverty, which is, a you know, a kind of a, an original angle. But also it was really interesting to hear about someone like comedy now is so full of people talking about their success. And I really enjoyed listening to someone talk about poverty and look, talk about good ways and kind of shrewd ways to be poor. And yeah. I wondered how much I've never been to Ohio. I've just kind of wondered, we should start off with kind of your background and what your expectations are growing up in Ohio. Okay. Um, so uh, Lorraine used to big, big steel yard shipyard auto industry. So like my dad used to work at the steel mill when I was a kid. Um, and so he's an electrician there. I'd always see him be kind of like unhappy or like complain about, the, the type of treatment he get, like he was a really good worker. So he'd have to do a bunch of stuff, but then like kind of his white coworkers would just be asked to do less because they wouldn't do it as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then my mom always worked at like nonprofits um, and kind of would always be overqualified, but undereducated. So like there were points where she was like uh, working within like a foster care agency as just a driver but knew enough from her time in past jobs that she would be like, oh, you're this, this caseworker is not advocating for their client correctly or like stuff like that. Yeah. And would speak out and then be kind of like, mm, that that's not your job. So okay. kind of like, um, and, but so, and they'd also always kind of hustle. So like they had those jobs, but when they didn't, like my mom does massages and energy work and like different stuff. My dad is an electrician's, so like now he does like he works at Ford, but also does like, you know, contracting work on the side and does floors and like can always they can always hustle up something. Right. So both of them worked most of the time when I was a kid. So I was alone a lot. You know, I still have my sister, but like, you know, I started learning how to cook and I was like eight. Uh, I was like pretty independent most of the time. I play video games, fill my time and just, you know, do bullshit. Um, but I feel like both of them working very hard to be exactly where they are kind of informed 
how I do comedy because I do it the same kind of like hustle. Like I get, you know, pop up here, pop up there, like figure out how to make it happen. Even if I'm not getting that uh, appreciation from the business side of it or any like forward momentum as far as like uh, uh, elevation within the ranks, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. Um, But seeing my parents work like that just kind of prepared me for like, okay, you're not going to be fully appreciated by everyone in the place. Just do your thing. And, you know, that informed me kind of hustling, doing my own shows. Um, But it also gave me the, because I grew up in like, not abject poverty, but just at like the top of the lower class. Like both my parents worked. If I wanted something, they'd get it. But I knew in order to for them to get it, they'd be gone to work. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's a correlation of time and emotion and money. Like those all are super intertwined for me. Um, and so I didn't have um, I didn't have a lot of expectations financially for myself. Mm-hmm. So comedy fit because there's no financial stability within it. Yeah. It's almost all hustle, which I'm like, I have in spades. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but that, that kind of helps you get to a certain point, but then figuring out that, like that business side of it and like how to properly advocate for yourself is like the thing I'm still struggling, <laughs> struggling sure, yeah, with. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned kind of rank there. Where, where do you, for people listening, the majority of my listeners in the UK, um, and they may have seen you at the Edinburgh Festival, um, uh, but it was a pretty small room. Like, you'd, I, I think yeah. you, you, you're not like toured here or something, have profile here. Give no, us I, that was my first time over there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I didn't, I think I knew that at the time. When, when did we, where did we meet? Did we meet in Texas or did uh, we meet We LA? met at South by Southwest gotcha. in 2018 or 2017. I think it was to the beginning of 2018. And then yes, I went to Edinburgh yes. that, that fall. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, okay. Because that's one of the things we were talking about. And then I knew you were going to turn up. And I saw you at Edinburgh show. You were at the stand. And we'll get into your your experiences in Edinburgh. Some of them I've heard some of your stand-up about on Spotify. Yeah. Um, but where, just give us a picture of kind of where you are. From, from your kind of description there, you know how to hustle, but it's kind of getting out of the the lane of people hustling and into the, into the lane where people call you. Is that where you're at at the moment? Like trying to bridge the gap? Yeah. Yeah. So like I, um, you know, when I first started clubs would be like, we can't work you. You don't have credits or you can't work you. You're not funny, Mm -hmm. which is fully understandable. You know, like it's uh, irrational to apply for a job you're not qualified for and be mad. You can't get it. Yeah. So that informed me, like, I ran a lot of my own shows because, okay, I'm not funny enough to work for you, but I can do this open mic. I can do this showcase. Um, and I got to the point where I was producing probably, like, two or three of my own shows a week, mm-hmm. plus, like, trying to work at the club. So over the years, I just slowly get in, uh, okay, now I'm hosting at this club. Okay, now I'm doing all my shows. I'm leaving the state. And I come back and I'd be ready to get moved up, but I'd have to stay as a host mm-hmm. and then get moved up. If you, like it, everything's on a delay, you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Like once you're ready, it's, you kind of still get catered back. So now I'm at the point where, you know, in 2016, I started accumulating credits, which was the thing that always said that 
we can't work you or headline you because you don't have this thing. Mm -hmm. So then I got a Comedy Central special when I was living in Ohio without a manager, which is that's very crazy. very unusual, right? That's like that doesn't happen. Very unusual. They said it wasn't the first time it happened, okay. but it's it's a rare occasion. Uh-huh. Um, and so, but when I went and did that, I was meeting all these managers and agents who I'd emailed before from booking shows, right? Yeah, yeah. And I remember someone saying like, "Oh, yeah." When I saw your name, I was like, "Ramon Rivas, he's a talent buyer." So they knew my name, but not in the context of a comedian or an act. They knew me as a person they could call to try to route their clients. Yeah, right. So was that was was that frustrating? Just that that feeling, like, was it frustrating to be like they know me, but not for the thing I want them to know me for? Was it frustrating, Um, or was it like, were you happy to be known? I was a, a, a mix of both. Because it's like, oh, cool, you already know me be- from the hustle. From what I do, my name has crossed your lips, mm-hmm. which is random for a dude from Ohio. Mm-hmm. But it's also shitty because a lot of times the first way someone knows you is going to be the only way until you like are in a position to like knock that down. Mm-hmm. Um, and But it was also very interesting because I was the only one without representation. I had a lot of people coming at me and showing me interest, but had that had no uh, knowledge or desire to actually know me. They just saw the name, saw the, the, the unattachment and were like, Ooh, you're a thing we can have. Okay. Because there was no, like I had people, when I went to LA for the first time, I had this, these two manager dudes chase me through the show. Like they saw me and they followed me because I was just walking through. And they're like, oh, yeah, we, we called you and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, cool. Yeah, I'm here for a few weeks to set up a meeting. I'll come in. Never followed up. But chased me. Yeah, <laughs> it was yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, <laughs> LA felt like a lot of that. Like okay. reaction to heat versus reaction to like actually, oh, let's build something here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got the credits. And then when I lived in LA from 2016 to 2019, um, I started getting more. Like I popped up on the Netflix show, Cooking on High, which is like a cannabis cooking show. Um, I got an HBO Latino special. So I'm on HBO Max. I got all these little logos, you know? All, all unrepresented. All unrepresented. All unrepresented. I had a manager for one year. Uh, I signed with a management company. And then like by the end of it, I was like, so what do y'all do? Because it was very, there were things we talked about in our first meeting that went unaddressed. And then like, like I did a pilot presentation when I was with them and they were like, Oh, we got something for you. I'm like, did you? Cause they emailed me and asked where to send an offer. And then now you're acting like you got that for me. So it was like a lot of shit like that. Um, So uh, we parted ways and then um, like, so now I'm at a point where I have credits. I have, you know, uh, I won't even say prestige. I have, if you look me up, you're like, oh, this dude's a comic. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. got, he's got thing, he's got albums, he's got specials, he's got appearances. This month, he's done, he's done things cool. And that used to be when I first started comedy, that was enough that you could just work. Right. But now it's changed to where when I go to these places on my head, I'd like to come in, like, you know, here's my veil, here's my thing. They're like, oh, yeah, you're not a draw, so we can't work you. And it's like, 
Oh, that's not what you told. I, I could have tried. <laughs> it just keep the goalpost keeps getting moved, but yeah. I see it not get moved for other people. Sure. So that's, okay. so that's if, where I feel stuck at. Because if what they'd said, or if you if you had clocked, if you'd re- recognized 10 years ago, oh, what you need is a draw, and actually the the kind of the baubles are immaterial. Like as long as you can get yeah. tickets, as long as you can get people to buy tickets, it doesn't matter if you have. That's kind of what we're seeing now, I guess, with YouTubers who are like, I can yeah. shift an incredible amount of units w- w- without necessarily having the um, the the skill base that you're looking for or the the credits. Yeah. So so, and I the- feel like all I feel like the main thing with credits is that they prove that you can exist in this medium. Yeah. Right. So, like now, when a club's like, "Can you be clean for this?" I'm like, "I've been on TV for thirty minutes. Like, I'm good. Like, yeah. don't <laughs> don't worry about it." Um, but it also like I I knew I knew enough to not let those matter to me because like even though I have done all these things, I'm still big, broken Brown. I'm still the same. Like I live, I'm in Lorraine at my dad's house. Like I'm in the same position, even though I have all this other shit, but I'm more skilled than I've ever been. It's, it's a weird duality. Yeah. Um, Okay. So do you think, and I'm just kind of like, I've got a certain amount of hustle. That's a hard thing to say. That's a very English way of putting it. But I have a certain amount of hustle. And I think I recognize the frustration in that of going, how can you apply the hustle that you have without the insight to know which direction you should be hustling in? I think a lot of us feel like that. You know, there's a lot of road miles being driven and a lot of uh, stage time being had that we all hope is going in the right direction without yeah. real insight. And it's something I, I suppose I saw when people got really good representation very early on. You know, you come up together, you do new new act competitions together, and you see some people just accelerate because they're getting the right advice and being pointed in the right direction. And then the there are people who have a variety of things to 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 lean back on. But certainly those people for whom it's like, well it's hustle, it's get out there, knock on doors, make it happen, but doesn't have the same kind of you don't have the kind of the time trial car in front of you to follow. Yeah. And like I've had, I've had so many of my friends and peers that I've met over the years. Like I started going to Chicago in 2009 and uh, I would crash on people, my friends' couches and stuff. And within a few years, everyone had moved to New York or LA and now they're all writing on shows and they've got specials and they're doing things. And so it's like the, uh, that like having a peer group that's excelling helps motivate and push you because it's like I when I would go to these places I wouldn't feel like oh man I'm behind them I'm like oh I'm right mm-hmm. with them like even mm-hmm. though I can't afford to live in this city my comedy still stands out in this city when I come here I don't feel like I'm like a country bumpkin like oh I'm you know because that happens sometimes where like a road dog a person who just goes to clubs will then go into New York and like do these like all indie shows and eat a dick the sure. whole set because it's not you're not here you're not in this moment you just hit play and you do your act yeah um and so being able to be around all these people who are thriving helps you know you see the blueprint and you're like okay what can i take in in and model what i'm doing after you know what i'm saying and that been that's one of the most helpful things in 
this because I think had I just stayed in Cleveland, I would have been a completely different type of comic because I wouldn't have imported these different facets. Yes. That 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 idea of a road dog or a you know that that I think we all know what that means. That's a, a very uh uh a beautifully American way of putting it that again sounds ridiculous coming out of my mouth. But <laughs> I think that act becomes that kind of act because of, amongst other things, financial pressure. And I think certainly yes. in the UK, I imagine it's reflected in the States as well. People can afford, certain people can afford to do indie alt rooms that don't pay, and they can afford to take risks and experiment and you know come up with original stuff because they don't have the financial considerations that someone else might have. So mm-hmm. to what extent, given that you have managed to, like, do you feel you have managed to, um, to inhabit that kind of creative part you know that kind of more alt like you could like an absolutely see you in an alt room do you yeah. feel that you've managed to cling to that despite the financial pressure of not having the financial backing that maybe some of your peers had um well most of <laughs> ramon i've just remembered it's 9 a.m in uh, ohio oh, and, yeah. <laughs> i just realized we no, just no, started no, s- straight off the blocks of like wake up let's get into it so thank you once again for uh <laughs> oh, no um i will say that like most of my like the DIY self-production stuff kept me economically viable. So uh, just because, like, I feel like you you can empathize with this. As a comedian, I'll do this shit for free every night just to do it. Like, that for a long time, that's the mindset. Whereas like, I just want to do this as much as I can, wherever I can, however I can. And so it went from every night is like a red where, like, it's costing me gas or whatever to go do this free show to then I'm producing my own shows and I have deals with venues where they're like giving me a $2 for every person that came out. So the open mic, then I'm doing showcases where I'm getting that and charging at the door. Uh So I went from these nights where things were red to like now a couple of times a week, I got some green. I got like, you know, I made 50 to a hundred dollars here. I made 50 to a hundred dollars there. It ain't much, but it paid my bills. It, kept gas in my car. I was paying comics for their set. Like a lot of people got paid for the first time at my shows. And all that did was show me like once like doing that and then start working as a, at the clubs. It's like, Oh, I make more money doing that, doing my own thing over here, but I get the prestige and the ego boost and the, 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 outside validation here yeah that 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 aspect of prestige is a good word but it's something as well as the prestige the ego the validation there is there is some kind of nuance in prestige whereby the the industry such as it exists and it's a principle of mine that it doesn't it's just satellites and everyone kind of spooking Mm -hmm. like a herd but let's say it exists there is something whereby if you are seen to be succeeding like if you're if you're it's not quite prestige it's like if you are seen or as well as prestige you have to be seen to be succeeding without hustle so that people don't just think you're a hustler do you know what i mean because because i think the the inverted commas industry can look at some acts and go oh sure well he's going to be there because he's you know he's making it work elsewhere rather than 
because he's got it on his own merit, which is an insane concept anyway, because if you look at how many successful people, it's not just merit, you know, it's not a meritocracy and an enormous amount of things need to fall the right way. Yeah. And I don't know, I don't think any, any of us exist on an Island, like so much, uh, like a lot of it is like the hustle from within me, but a lot of it's been co-signs from people I've met, you know, across the years who like, you know, as I would bring people to do shows in Cleveland and then I travel to Chicago to New York or LA, each time I go, I get to do better and better shit mm-hmm. because I, my network was bigger. Yeah. You know, hosting for this, this, that, or the other comic at the club. They're like, Oh, you're funny. Oh, you're in LA. Come do my show. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, same with you. Like when we met in South by Southwest. Yeah we hung out in Edinburgh and now we're doing this podcast. Sure. Right. It's a slow burn, but it's like uh, that came from, that didn't come from, it came partly from my household, but it came from the connection we established by just yeah, right. vibing. Like we vibed in South by Southwest. Sure. You know, we didn't really know each other. And, you know, like I'd heard your podcast before, but like, I appreciated, I appreciate what you do. You know what I'm saying? Like I respect and appreciate your position in the game but I'm not familiar with the UK. Sure. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I had context for you, but I didn't know your context within the game. I was just like, Oh, this dude's cool. He does this thing. He's cool. I like his vibe. I'm gonna fuck with you. So this is Ramon Rivas. Great fun talking to him. You can hear, I think if you've, I'm not sure when this bit is dropping in yet in the middle of the episode, but I think by now you should have had the moment where Ramon says to me, a quintessentially English person, you know, it was a sentence that ended with, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll fuck with you, you know? And what he meant was, I'll, I'll deal with you, I'll get on with you. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I really like you. That's why I'll fuck with you. And you could, I wish you could have seen my face. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, I totally get that. <laughs> But that's the first time anyone in my life has said that they would fuck with me. Uh, and what an experience that was. So listen, more from Ramon shortly. Uh, you can go, of course, to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to get 40 minutes of extras, uh, including if you too wish to live in abundance, despite uh, a lack of financial privilege, then there are some kind of eyebrow raising tactics that Ramon suggests for uh uh, I mean, I won't go into them. I'm going to just save them. So uh, this, this is clickbait, but there it is. Uh, there are some really fascinating things which are kind of, A, usable if you are so inclined, B, funny, and C, certainly an insight on how Ramon's mind works. So plenty more hustle to come. Uh, and in the extras, also, uh, if you are in the Insiders Club, you can get hold of the exclusive Insiders Zoom Q&A that we did with James Acaster. And there is another one in the diary for a couple of weeks from now with Mr. Nish Kumar. So look forward to those. If you're thinking about joining the Insiders Club, jump in now and you will get, uh, I'll make sure just before we do it, I'm going to tell everyone about it on the Insiders mailing list today. Um, but if you join between now and when it happens, I'll also, I'll, I'll check out another mail out that morning to make sure we scoop up any newbies. That's all for now. Follow, it's not all for now, let's get back into it, but you can remember, you can go to blazerramon.com or follow Ramon on Twitter at blazerramon. I'm saying Ramon different when it's after the word blazer. Blazer Ramon. I'm fudging it every time. It's It's Ramon, but it could also be Ramon, depending on how English you are. Here he is. I want to talk to you about Edinburgh and your experiences there, but let's continue for people who don't know you. Let's, let's continue the actual the, the comedy credentials. One of the things I love, one like one of I've said that word nuance a moment ago, but I I see you as a very nuanced comic because you are so 
and I don't want to keep saying laid back, but you're so kind of so, like you, as you have a, a line um, about seeming like you perpetually just woke up from a nap, like that kind yeah. of slow, soft energy. It's like, um, it's almost, it reminds me kind of like a martial art where it's not, it's like, it's a kind of like Aikido. Do you know what I mean? It's not about striking. It's just about, Oh, and look, they've, and now suddenly you're in charge, you know? Yeah. And typified, I think I really like the word super duper in an opening line that I've seen you use on various sets on your album and stuff. You know, I'm living with my sister because it's super duper free. And the use of super duper is so just soft. It's such a silly little rounded word, like right from the off first line, it has mm. this kind of, softness to it now i was listening to one of your what you you i think you've remastered one of your albums or some older stuff you just recently put on spotify yeah. in a kind of pandemic pivot we'll get to that um but listening to that you were there was some material which i hadn't heard from you before which was about um the way that you um uh deliberately sound like you just woke up from a nap in order to be safe existing in America. And so I wanted to talk yeah. about not just the cultural context of that, but also the extent to which that softness is a choice in your life and the extent to which that softness is a choice on stage. So a lot of those realizations came from Edinburgh because it was such a shocking um, culture. Like it was weird because when I landed in Edinburgh, I'd been in LA for so long. I landed, I was like, why does this, feel familiar like it felt I didn't feel uncomfortable because it reminded me so much of Cleveland like as far as like the weather was like nice and then it'd be rainy and then it'd be shitty and then it'd be nice again and then it'd be rainy that's Cleveland all day okay and so and then the cut of the people was similar like just kind of working class y'all are just existing for the now you're not chasing anything you just boom you're having a pint you're having some fish and chips you chilling and then people started processing me as white, which was such a jarring, because that's one thing I could never be in America. And so I started to have this realization of like, am I this chill as, a, as an adaptation in the sense of like, when there's a squirrel that lives in the desert, they grow like a dark stripe down their back to cope yeah, with right. the sun. Yeah, yeah. So am I this chill because it's the safest way for me to exist in this body? And the logic behind that is I've always been big. Like I said earlier, I feel like I've always been big, broken, brown. I, when I was in kindergarten, I was the size of a third grader. When I was a third grader, I was the size of like a sixth grader. And when I was in fifth grade, I was the size of my dad. Me and my dad wore the same exact size clothes when I was in fifth grade. Okay. So I've been the size of a man since I was in fifth grade. And then I got bigger, right? And so that comes with a weird responsibility that you don't really realize. And the case I, I can point to specifically is Tamir Rice. So Tamir Rice was a 12-year-old, again, size of a man. So same age, like when I was the same size as my dad, I was 12. So Tamir Rice was 12 years old at a park uh, playing with a toy gun. Someone called the cops like, hey, I think this kid has a toy gun. He's kind of pointing at people. And they rolled up and they shot him within a second of pulling up on him. And he was just a kid who didn't realize what his size meant to other people. Mm. And so I've always had that, this vague awareness. I think because people always made fun of me for being big, I was hyper aware of it. 
And so I just kind of always automatically would shrink myself down for the comfort of others. Because if I take up the proper amount of space, Mm. you may be like, oh, intimidated by that. You know, like I, 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 that's kind of where that line, like uh, that, the uh, sound like I woke up from a nap comes from. Like, I say I was impatient and indignant when I was in Scotland. And, and it was beautiful because I don't get to do those things in America. Yeah, right. I'm in, if I'm impatient or indignant here, that's aggressive. Yeah. And aggressive in my body is dangerous. And those are all realizations I had in Scotland, but that had already been baked into me. Yeah. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So I didn't realize that that was what happened until that happened. I'm like, well, look, what's going on? Yeah. You're kind of and, like, you're almost on a, I mean, not on vacation, obviously you're working, but just to be in a space where you're allowed to be impatient. Yeah. Like you get a sense of, Oh, this is what privilege is like. Oh yeah. And like the, um, what do I want to say? the the sense of the the sensibility of whiteness over there like i was allowed to be white in the uk because it doesn't mean the same thing it means in america and that's such a weird thing to try to explain to white people in in america um but seeing those cracks and things while i was in scotland helped me kind of start to yeah. figure that type of yeah, shit out yeah um but it was um it's just such a weird thing to like and all this global unrest that's been uh happening during the pandemic like all the racial injustice having that come out like that 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 the impetus of that like the feeling behind all of that is what's always in the back of my head just in the operating procedure mm. like and so it's kind of relieving that now it's something everyone's aware of. Like, okay, I'm not just crazy uh, for having this feeling. Um, but it's a hard thing to um, – sometimes it feels like an irrational fear. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't want it to cripple me, but it is something I always have to be aware of. Um, and I don't know what type of – experience i can like correlate that to to make it understandable for people who haven't had to think like that sure um but yeah so like that's kind of been uh you know i don't my voice is like this just because this is how it is but like you know uh i've always been chill i've always been relaxed i smoke a lot of weed so that makes it extra chill um and i don't i i I think it's a mix of both. It's a nature and a nurture thing Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. because it's easier for me to exist around people. If I'm not viewed as an aggressive or or, or imposing entity and on stage, I I'm, I'm, I'm lifted up from you already. And I'm like, so having that soft laid back approach keeps keeps me from people being like crossing their arms or like adjusting to my physicality without me saying anything have you have you experimented with other or did you in the early part of your your comedy career did you ever experiment with different ways of being on stage or did you step out being pretty much you know what what is now the 
your comedy persona? Um, I mean, it took it takes a lot of failing into yourself to find your 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 true persona. Um, I will say that like early on, I was trying to write jokes like I've heard before. Yeah. And what I mean by that is I would sit with something and I'd read it and then I'd write jokes off of it. Just kind of like the formulaic, like this happened in the news and da, 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 da. And I would struggle to remember that stuff because I didn't really give a fuck about it. But I was like trying to do the, you know, the, the traditional like, well, this is what jokes sound like. And this is where and um i was sitting i was opening for one of my buddies at some colleges and we did like a chunk of them and then there was a break and then we did another chunk and during the break i wrote some jokes and then so at the start of the second run i did them and i was doing terribly to the point where his manager said like hey he can't perform at these other schools right and so i'm like all right cool he's like i'll still pay you like this whatever because we were like somewhere in pennsylvania he's like i'll still pay you it's whatever but so I was like, okay, cool. So we're just sitting and smoking. And I'm talking about my family. I'm talking about my sister and her kids. I'm talking about my dad. I'm talking about my mom. And he's like, oh, this is what you should be talking about. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you you, you know all this shit. You you care about it. So, like, it's not going to be as hard for you to remember as other shit. I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good call. <laughs> and so that, that informed me just because – up to that point I was trying to find common ground with the audience so that they would connect with me. You know what I'm saying? Like, have you guys ever drank so much you threw up driving to work like that type of shit. And so then I hard pivot from that to just specifically talking about my experience. And in doing that, I started having more people connect with me because they'd be like, Oh, you remind me so much of my cousin or my brother or my friend. Like I started to, by being the most me or honoring me more fully, I, there's a lot of people who are like me, but there's no one exactly like me. So like, that's what I started to tap into, um, like three or four years into comedy. And then also, you know, I was going to these other cities. So I'd see these fucking just monsters at open mic still. So like I saw like Drew Michael, who's got like an HBO special. He taped his Comedy Central special at the same time as me. He's got such a dark lean to how he does comedy. And it's so specific and meticulous. So like seeing someone like that at a mic, it's like, damn, okay. Um, Lisa Traeger, Megan Gale. I started seeing these people who were just, not fully formed, but they were already shades of what they were going to be. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of helped me feel competent too. You yes. know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, it's interesting with Lisa in particular. I don't know there's other names, but Lisa's been on the show and she is a, a case in point of someone who is like, oh, you're being 100% yourself. You're being precisely and absolutely exactly what you are and not trying to be relatable in any way and just like, oh, this is me, this is it. Yeah, Was which that-, that takes a certain amount of fearlessness to do that because it is like, you know, at the end of the day, you're up there seeking attention and connection and uh, doing that without any regard for the other people's <laughs> connection to you is 
scary and jarring at a certain point, but it's like, that's where a lot of growth happens once you let go of that, like need to be connected. If that makes sense. Do you feel like you've let go of that need? Um, to a certain extent. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've let go of that need in the context of what I talk about. Um, you know, like, uh, I'll, uh, one of the clubs that I'm like came up in, um, it's, you know, they say mainstream or dinnery. It's just a white club. Um, and <laughs> I saw so, this on your Twitter feed talking about the word dinnery to describe white people. Like I don't yeah. directly translatable over here. I feel like I know what you mean though. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, I get what you're saying, but like, you know, it, 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 code switching is whatever. But so I, there was a time I was home from when I was in LA I asked to open for this comic, not because I liked them, just because I saw they didn't have a host or feature with them. So I was like, oh, if I can grab that, I'm here. And the manager was like, can you not piss off his crowd for 10 minutes? And I was like, yeah, and just moved on. But I don't think he realized the depth of, like, disrespect in that statement. (laughs) And so... I because it was just like it was just a gonna be like a white basic white crowd and it's like I've worked here for so long why would you think I couldn't do that first of all but then all right fuck you I'm still gonna talk about so I did that chunk about going to Edinburgh which talks about like race and poverty and I did exactly what I normally do and had the owner come up to me at the end of the weekend like yo I got a lot of really great compliments about you great job yeah now I said all that to say, like, I didn't give a fuck that the manager was like, well, can you do that? I didn't give a fuck that this crowd may have certain, like, oh, don't talk about this. Don't talk about that. I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about. And I don't give a fuck if you guys, if all of you like it or not, there's someone in this room who'll fuck with it. And having the getting to that mindset was important because if I wasn't in that space and they had said that to me, then I'm in my head. I'm like, okay, you can't do this. You can't do that. Uh, uh, Hey, hi everybody. How, how anyone celebrate? Like you're, you're living to please someone who ain't, who don't know comedy. Yeah. Like you can say that to me, but you can't go, you can't go up on stage and not bomb in front of these people. You'll make them mad immediately. (laughs) But you, because of your position, you presume to be able to tell me what to do or how to serve it. It's like, that's my artistic position. Just just putting the shoe on the other foot for a second. As someone that runs clubs, have you ever felt that you needed to say to people before they go on, hey, listen, I know what you do, and it would be great if you inflected it in this direction? Like, have you ever been in the position, um, having identified that kind of the... the uh, yeah, how wrong that is for someone to say that. Have you ever been in that position yourself? Do you Can you see where that comes from? I can see where that comes from. Uh, as someone who produced shows, like I, my care consideration as a producer is different than my consideration as a comic. Yeah. As a producer, if I set the room up right and got the music going, set a vibe, the audience comes in, they're feeling good, they're loose. Now I've set it up to where, like, you're only going to bomb if you're meant to. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not like this crowd's not shitty. 
they're not like they're in a good, they're in a mode, they're in a zone, we'll go. And so if I do that right, I shouldn't have to worry about you doing well. Now, as I ran shows, I do like open mics where it's still that, but like, I don't know any of these people. These are random people who emailed me. I gave them a date and now they're here. So then I I just be like, I'll give you the light at four minutes and you get off at five. And if they're bombing, I just give them a light at two. I just pull them down a little early. I'm not, it's not my place to tell you what to do. That's your journey to figure out. But I did have, I was, (laughs) I was out of town once and I had a bunch of people texting me like, yo, this dude at this open mic is being mad racist. Someone got up and threw a chicken wing at him, right? And I'm like, damn, you had to be real racist because, like, no one's ever thrown a chicken wing at anybody. And so I had to, when I got home, I sat, I ran into the mic. I was like, yo, can we talk? And I told him, I was like, yo, I'm, I'm sure you're not racist. I'm sure that's not what your intention is. But that's how you're coming across. And so... Uh, I probably won't have you on the mic for a while as you figure that out, but feel free in a few months to hit me up. So like, that was my position after the fact, after someone threw a whole ass chicken wing at you, (laughs) but I didn't before he said, I wasn't be like, Hey, don't do no racial shit, blah, blah, blah. Like you sink or swim on your own, bro. If you, you know, I, I, as someone who has bombed, like, that chunk about going to Edinburgh bombed a whole bunch the first time I did it. The first dozen times I did it. But it's something I wanted to talk about. So I kind of figured it out. And that that piece, what I love about that the Edinburgh story is that you really are getting into some stuff in a way that is, like, when I heard that bit, I was like, oh, hello. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it's better. It's it's kind of an improvement. It's it's better. You know, I know that's a meaningless term, and I don't even know you that well. But yeah. like for me, I was like hearing that was like, whoa, that's that's gone up a gear because, it, and I think it's it's like leaning into what's meaningful and leaning into what's actually important to you is enabling you to talk about stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that was you know um, a lot of just that trial and error, but like. I feel like if you're if I'm playing the game for someone else's comfort, I may never have even touched that Edinburgh chunk because it's like immediately I know talking about race is uncomfortable for people, talking about whiteness is uncomfortable for people, talking about how it's a construct is uncomfortable for people. And so it's like all the immediately three discomforting notions in this piece of material that if I weren't so laid back, I might not be able to touch because, you know, if I was up there like white people, y'all trash. That's taken. That's an arm crossing immediate type of thing. Um, So uh, yeah, uh, I hate when people tell me that type of shit, but I understand where it comes from. That's why I don't get mad about it. Um, But I still can be like, Mm, fuck you. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about, about Latino comedy or because I know you did the, um, was it uh, Entre Nos? 
Entrenos, yeah. Entrenos. So the HBO Max thing, which was kind of Latino comedy, which I don't know if that is even the politically correct term. Is it? Is it Latinx comedy? I don't even know how to pronounce uh, that. I've seen I, on Twitter. I, I have no idea how to pronounce Latin with an X at the end. I think it's just Latinx or Latinx. I don't, again, <laughs> I don't know. That's one of those the things feel... that started popping up a few years ago. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I'm glad you don't know I... either. I now feel like that's less of a, an invalidating hole in my own knowledge. Yeah, no, you're just as invalid as me. Um, the So when I did that HBO Latino special, that came from the guys who booked me for South by Southwest. Okay. Because for South by Southwest, I was initially only supposed to do the Latino showcase the first night of it and then leave. But I they asked me to do it. I was like, cool. Can I get a pass for the festival? And they're like, oh, let's check. They're like, yeah, you get a pass. I was like, cool. Can I stay longer if I'm getting the pass? And they're like, okay, yeah, we'll cover your hotel till Sunday. I was like, okay, cool. If I have somewhere to stay, can I get a buyout at that hotel? So I wound up like getting a little more, like you know, than they were initially offering me. And I just stayed at some people I knew from Cleveland who lived down there, uh, who used to just come to my shows that I ran at bars, and they liked me enough to let me stay in their guest room. Um, and so I just stayed the whole, like the, after the comedy ended, I was still in South by Southwest <laughs> going to music shows. And so these dudes who I never met them before, but they liked, they saw me, they liked me, they brought me out for that. And then that kind of developed a rapport. And then they asked, they were, they, pro, so it's not an HBO production. It is a, a Viva Pictures production that they then sell to HBO. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, you know, potato, potato, but like that's kind of important because it's like, it's not an HBO, like HBO money is different than Viva Pictures money. Got it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and so they asked me to do this. I'm like, that's cool. I don't speak Spanish. Like, I know I am Hispanic, I'm Mexican, I'm Puerto Rican. But I don't speak Spanish. Is that okay? They're like, yeah, that's fine. It'll be subtitled. So it's funny that like it is in English and then subtitled in Spanish. <laughs> and do you do uh, the bit? Do you do the? I couldn't get that set. I can't access it over here. But uh, in that set, do you um, uh, do you do the bit about um, you know ordering turkey sandwich with someone who is? I think I, I think I did. Uh, I I believe that that thing I did for HBO. I was talking more about. Um, uh, like sexual power dynamics okay in in that set but i think i i use that um turkey sandwich thing as like the the setup for me yeah gotcha okay um and then that was that was just before i went to edinburgh so that was like the summer before i went to edinburgh so like i was kind of like my thesis for edinburgh was um accounting for my social position, its impact on how I navigated sex, right? And so the HBO Latino special was that thesis in a shorter set. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I I was working towards go. I'd never gone to Edinburgh. I'd never built a show like that before. So everything leading up to that, if I was doing a five-minute set, I was trying to hit that thesis. If I was doing a 30-minute set, I was trying to hit that thesis. If I was headlining, I was trying to hit it. And just to go to Edinburgh and continue to just work through this thing. So when I came back to America, I had something to tour with. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So 
with respect to Edinburgh, do you find that now you're, I mean, you, you hustle, you go to festivals. Did you have like an hour long set before you went to Edinburgh or was it like an hour, like a, a headline thing is, is what kind of 40 to an hour? Yeah. Headlining, headlining's here like 45. Okay. Um, I, so I think the year before that I headlined hilarities in Cleveland and I did uh, everything I had. And I think I did like 67 minutes. Right. Okay. And so then from there, I started building the specific Edinburgh actor, the thesis towards that. So I was using some of the things I'd already done uh, in support of the thesis. So it kind of shifted how I was using things. Because like I'd always talked about dating. I'd always talked about my family. I'd always talked about poverty but I never talked about how interconnected those things all are. And so that's what I started to explore. So I had a base of, you know, this 20 minutes is funny. It works already. It will build a rapport with the audience to then I can talk about this other shit I want to talk about. Okay. And so in Edinburgh, I was really accordioning it out like i was treating it like when rocky goes to the mountains yeah yeah like yeah training, i think we all did right <laughs> now yeah. i was i was rooming with alex edelman and i was telling him like oh yeah i'm just used this training rocking the mountains he's like oh yeah i i this is the fight for me yeah yeah so i'm like oh yeah everyone uses it differently but that just completely blew my mind to like oh yeah y'all have shit done when you're doing this absolutely and, and i mean i think a lot of u.s acts make that mistake or not necessarily a mistake but they're by taking a particular approach i know what a lot of people have found is that they've come to edinburgh and then on like their first preview they've had all of the major press in because they're like oh someone american who's new we haven't reviewed before they're all excited they made an effort you know chances are the bigger american acts have got pr the pr has been good pr because americans are like oh i'm gonna lose my shirt here so i'll spend all the money yeah. i've been told to spend and as a result they're kind of stumbling around cobbling together <laughs> you know some notes and some ideas yeah. on day one and then they get a really you know a raft of difficult reviews again something in people in the states not that used to getting reviewed yeah so that can be that's really funny of course i mean i know alex well as you know and uh, uh the idea that that is the fight for him of course i can absolutely hear oh, him yeah, saying yeah, that. yeah yeah but that's you know that's one of those things that um i didn't know that y'all don't like unfinished <laughs> unfinished things um because technically it should have been like a work in progress is what i should have labeled it as sure um but i you know i didn't i didn't know anything about the context of what edinburgh was aside from like i saw the uh, the documentary that hannibal made the hannibal takes edinburgh <laughs> yeah yeah which like really just made me want to go more than anything just because uh even though i have the credits even though i have headline i don't like edinburgh those doing my hour 21 times it's supposed to be 24 but a couple got canceled because of no shit no crowd that's the most i've ever gotten to headline to that point like if you added up all the headline shit i did before edinburgh that still was more than i had ever gotten to do before so it was uh, indescribably beneficial to be able to do that to 
I, I'm a big proponent of failing anonymously. So like being able to do that. And like, there was a night where it was just a, a couple, it was a husband and a wife. And I went through my shit and it was very conversational. We're talking. And at the end, they're like, man, we're going to go home and talk to our son about sex and dating and shit. Just like you made us. I'm like, oh, okay, good. Cool. Um, but like, uh, it would be nice to go back and have like a proper finished thing and try to get people to come see that finished product versus like, I was my own street team. I was doing shit, but I also knew that like, I, uh, I just need a little bit of y'all so I could work on this shit. Now, the more of you there are, the more energy it will like, the better it will be. But because I'm just working out, I just need a few of y'all. Yeah, yeah. So it would, you know, and that was me going, I went to Edinburgh with, I think two grand or 2,500. So my flight out was like less than five. My, uh, lodging was 15. So I lived in Edinburgh for, with 500 bucks for a month, which is like, not like people go out there with like $10,000 to just pay their street team. <laughs> yeah, so yeah like, absolutely i'm not what I I, sorry i've gone quiet because i'm like all right now we're going to get how to do edinburgh poverty efficiently <laughs> how to do yeah. how to do edinburgh as financially efficiently as possible yeah and so like you know alex found the where we stayed which was super centrally located a uh, low pricey like my half of the rent was 1500 like that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of money. Um, but, um, you know, I had saved up and I was like, okay, cool. Boom. And then I'm just good at budgeting. So like I, you know, would buy groceries. I cook for myself. Um, I would, uh, I don't drink. So that was a great less money to spend. Um, and then I had a, a random fan, who he listens to Doug Benson's podcast. He just was like, when you're in uh, Edinburgh, I got, I got weed for you. I was like, cool. (laughs) And he brought, he brought me so much. He brought me a bunch of weed. And I was like, thank you. Which saved me a lot. Cause he told me that like an ounce of weed is like 500 pounds, which is like $700 American, which is like two, three times as much as it costs in the States. Sure. Okay. Um, So like that, like I would have just not smoked weed if it weren't for that dude. Um, and it was so helpful to have weed to process all this, like, Oh, I'm white over here. Um, and yeah, just like, I didn't have a street team budget. Like I didn't have the budget to do the things you should do in Edinburgh, but I had enough to, I went to the little consignment shops and I bought like some cool pants. Like, you know, I still did the things I enjoyed doing. I'm just so used to, um, I guess balling on a budget is is how I'll put it. Um, like uh, me and Megan Gailey did a pilot presentation. It was a travel show, and the concept was like highbrow, lowbrow. Like experience a city from like a highbrow perspective. Oh, it's a great idea. Perfect, and it, we were perfect for it because she's very like, uh, you know, comes from like a wealthy family, but is very grounded. But the things she wanted to do was were very like tailgated a sporting event and like go to bars. It's like, well, that's 
kind of lowbrow, even though you're the highbrow <laughs> thing. And I wanted to like go to the art museum and like do shit that was so it was an interesting juxtaposition. But um, my experiences all kind of that fit me so perfectly because that's just how I exist. Yeah. Like I, 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 I'm rich in moments in time. Like comedy's taking me all over the world, but I'm socioeconomically still in the same spot. But because I grew up the same way, I know how to, <laughs> like, I keep my sense of needs and wants low so I can feel some sense of abundance. So even just, even though I didn't have money in Edinburgh, just being there was a flex. Like I paid, I had a month long vacation where I broke even. Yeah. Right. You know what yeah. I'm like that's, yeah, right. That's not like that. That's not successful Edinburghing, but that's successful vacationing. Do you do you think those that whole kind of mentality of living in abundance by having lower ex? How did you put it? Not by lower expectations, uh, I, but lower needs. My needs and wants. wants are low, so that sometimes I'll feel abundant. Because yes. if my needs and wants are up here, but I'm my experiences are all down here. Yeah. Well, now I'm always feeling less than. Of course, of course. And, and if I I'm think, down here, my experiences are here, then I'm feeling like, oh, look at me. I'm out here crushing it. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I'm just wondering whether, like, I do that sometimes about um, – I'm interested. I'm inquiring now as to whether I'm doing that when I say to myself, hey, you know, the, one, of, one, of the great, one of the great kind of um, – uh, uh, not a thought experiment, what, a thing you think, idea – yeah, notion. One of my great notions is um, <laughs> I just reminded myself of Fry and Future Armor. What do you call that thing? A headache with pictures, an idea. That's it. One of one of my <laughs> notions about comedy is um, is that Chris Rock. Best part of Chris Rock's day is he thinks of a new joke on the way to the show and then does it and it gets something. That's the best part of the show, right? And and that's mm-hmm. like it's a notion for me because the ice I get to have that. So I'm wondering if I'm doing a similar thing about like I'm living artistically in abundance despite oh, not yeah. being at the level of like a huge comic. And I just wondered, like, I, I, I spot myself doing that. And I don't know whether I feel like noble or like a loser for doing it. Do you know what I mean? It's like, there's, there's always, there's always two sides of that, that perspective. You oh, know, yeah. if you look at it like this, I'm a huge success, you know, and like, for example, I have the love of my two children. I am a successful man. Well, that's what you would need to say if you weren't so successful. Do you know what I mean? There's always, there's always yeah. like uh, just a perspective on it. And I just wonder how you feel about that as regards abundance in your career. Like, I suppose what we're talking about is whether you are grateful for what you have versus feeling like you deserve more or, or desire more, or, you know, like, you know, I've had peers who have gone on to be more successful. Like, where do you sit on that as, as per your kind of happiness? Uh, I'm, I'm grateful for everything I have. I am hopeful for more. I don't expect more. I don't feel like I'm entitled to more. I feel like what I am may warrant more, but that's outside of my hands. Um, And I try not to... How do I put this? Um... So, like, there's a thing uh, in America they do in a bunch of different cities called 51st Jokes, where the very beginning of the year, 50-some comics go up on stage and they do the first new joke they've written, right? Okay. 
And I did it in Cleveland for a few years, just as kind of like a community building. And I, I, I think that's beautiful because regardless of I got this, that, the other credits, this other motherfucker is barely a comedian, but we're both on the same footing. We're both here trying a new thing. And that's the same mindset I have when I go to open mics. We all here, we're all the same. It's not a big deal. But then other people will be like, why are you here? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? They're like, well, you have this, that, and the other. Why are you here? I'm like, oh, because we're still the same. Like, it's a weird, like, yes, I have these things, but they do not define me. They don't complete me. They're just, it's the same as being like, well, you have that cool shirt. Why do you still have, why do you still buy shirts? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, so like uh, th- that always exists in me, that that thing that we're all the same, like I'm on no better footing than you. You're on no better footing than me. We're both doing the same thing or with our own take and spin. And I think doing that may be like an adaptive thing in my brain so that I don't um, let my ego build. Does that make sense? Like it's a constant battle of ego and id. And I never want to live for my ego. Um, And because the times where I've, I've lost that centering and have started to, I didn't like how it felt. Um, So, uh, but it's weird because this is a very egotistical business and the people who I see comfortable flexing their ego generally cut the line. Um, but that I, again, I feel like that's, you mean in the sense of they get, they get there sooner. And yes, but I also think that's because they feel entitled to it. Yeah. And so they're like, you know, if someone walks in like, where's my coffee? You're just going to get them coffee. Thanks so much to Ramon Rivas II for coming on the show. An absolute joy to have you. Uh, thank you to all of the usuals. Pete Dobbing, your podcast consultant. Music by Rob Smerton. Logging by Jake Crossland. And, uh, of course, Nathan Wood was your uploader, editor and general generalissimo yeah that's fine um so uh loads more on the insiders so jump on that uh also nish kumar coming up for a private insiders q a and the one we did with james acaster we that will be recorded if you're an insiders club person and you can't make it on the day it will be recorded it will be available uh to listen to on the private podcast the one we did with james acaster is still up there and i tell you what I love doing those and we're going to have some in. I think we're going to do one with Olga. I think we're going to do one with Tom Neenan as well. Um, And uh, I just particularly enjoy them, not least because they completely shuck away all of the kind of trodden in anxiety that I seem to feel when I do anything with anyone. Um, The fact of like the structure of me just kind of facilitating people in the Insiders Club who are self-selecting comedy fans, super fans, um, is is just incredibly satisfying and fun. So if I could do one of them a day for the rest of my life, why don't we work our way back through the ComCom back catalogue doing insiders Q&As? How many of them can you take if you want to turn up, get in a Zoom room with someone brilliant and uh, get to ask them some questions whilst I just sort of sit there enjoying myself, chipping in and occasionally uh, being ready to go, whoa, 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 that's a bit personal. 
which I haven't needed to so far, but who knows. So that is all that. Um, I was going to, oh my God, I've got seven minutes to post Amble at you. I'm going to use every seven of them. That's all for now for the episode. Um, uh, Blazer Ramon and uh, BlazerRamon.com and at Blazer Ramon. And everything I'm up to is also on the show notes. Do check out the new website, stuartgoldsmith.co.uk. Uh, it is, it took a long time <laughs> and and it can it contains links to all of the things I'm doing and I'm doing lots of things. So check them out. Uh, send me some feedback if you like. Will that will that make people go and visit it? The possibility of giving me feedback. There's a great thread on the Facebook ComCom com, com group uh, whereby I asked, what's your least favourite thing about my website? And you guys told me. So thanks for that. Um, that's all for now. See you next week. Next week's episode already in the can with Lawyer Sogola. And I've got some fabulous recordings with two fabulous comedy acts coming up in the next couple of days. So plenty more to come. See you soon. Bye for now. So here we are. Here's a little thing. Uh, I now have five minutes within which to record uh, a postamble, and I keep the last three episodes haven't had one because I've been too busy. Well, the kids are back at school. <laughs> one one of them is the Boutros is back at school. As a result, we only need to deal with Future Girl, and uh, as a result of that, things are a little calmer. Although, and this may become an issue. Uh, pertinent to all of us as the pandemic hopefully grinds to a halt ends clear clears up oh it's, yeah we had a pandemic but it cleared up um i have been putting things off till now thinking oh i'll I'll get around to that when the bootross is back at school and now of course oh now that's now it's not some hazily defined future point at which i'll need to get things done it's right now oh god and i wonder whether that will be writ large <laughs> that will become a macro issue in the months and years to come whereby all of the stuff that we thought well i can just ignore this for the moment there's a pandemic on whether it's all gonna come crashing back to bother us let's let's be more positive than that but um, I, I did see, here's a, here's a note, which I do think is positive. I was listening to, I was catching up with one of my favourite podcasts, Boars, Gore and Swords, which started life many years ago as a Game of Thrones accompaniment kind of book club, you know, like TV episode, re, what is it, like a recap? I can't remember the genre. But now they uh, just tell you what you should be watching. Ivan and Red, very, very funny guys. And um, they are a, they've been a constant companion for many years. I got back into it because I finally got up to date with WandaVision. As a result, the last nine eps have been about WandaVision, so I, I couldn't go near them for fear of spoilers. And I'm getting there. And something they mentioned in passing is that uh, after Spanish flu, there were next to no cultural artefacts created about it, right? So after whenever that was, 100 or so years ago, very few people at the end of that pandemic made art about the pandemic. They didn't draw pictures, make paintings and write novels about it. Everyone just got on with it. And I think there's, is there not a movie coming out fairly soon with, oh God, I saw it advertised. I forget who's in it even, but it's like, a, it's a movie called Lockdown or something like that. Locked Down. Is it with Chewit Lyza for and someone else? Um, and uh, there is a feeling, like I saw that, I saw it that a film exists and I went, oh, I don't want to be reminded of that. <laughs> and uh, Ivan and Red were talking about how um, someone in this TV show had uh, uh, wore a mask and they found it really jarring. And anyway, the upshot is, look, we don't need to make art about the pandemic at the end of the pandemic. We are all going to be absolutely sick to the back teeth of it. And we can just pretend as a world that it never happened. Those of us lucky enough to be on the recovering side of it. But 
the point I made on Twitter, and I will make to you now, is that maybe if you're writing a show about the pandemic, just don't bother. Just pretend that this is what I wanted. I've gambled on that being the case. I think I'm in celebratory mode because I have gambled. I have gambled on no one wanting to hear about the pandemic. And as a result, written next to no jokes about the pandemic. I thought, that's not going to work. What's the point? That's wasted time. That's like writing a joke about, you know, I never write jokes about TV because I think they're alienating if you haven't seen the TV thing. I don't write a lot of topical stuff because if I'm going to bother writing a joke, I want to be able to use it forever. A terrible attitude, I now realise. But uh, with that attitude in mind, when everything went tits up last year, I thought, I'm not going to write jokes about this because they're not going to last beyond it. So anyway, history has proved me right retrospectively, <laughs> but history we, it remains to be seen, doesn't it, whether history will prove me right in the future. <laughs> Thank God I've run out of time. That'll have to do for now. Thank you once again to Ramon. Thanks for listening. Get on the Insiders Club for that Nish Kumar thing if you haven't already, and I will speak to you next week with lawyer Sugola as we discuss his forthcoming Netflix special, which he recorded in COVID times with a socially distant audience. Plenty to talk about there. See you soon. 